Hi everyone, Rachel Zabonik with Club Solutions Magazine here. Thanks for taking the time to attend our webinar. We have presenting today Garrett Marshall from Fitness on Demand, and he's gonna be talking about the impact of virtual on an existing group fitness program. If you guys have any questions, feel free to send those through, and if there's time at the end, we'll be able to answer them. Garrett, are you ready to take it away? I think I'm ready. All right, thank you. Great, thanks Rachel. Uh, well, as as Rachel pointed out, um, for those of you that don't know me, I'm Garrett Marshall. I'm the divisional CEO here at Fitness on Demand, and um, I've spent most of my professional career, probably since around 2003, focused on uh, fitness and well-being. And during that time, I've, I've spent time on, on the club operation side of the industry, as well as now, more recently, the service provider side of the industry. And um, regardless of the various roles that I've occupied, I think there's, there's been one constant. I've always been someone who's like pursued new ideas, tried to prove things, and ultimately figure out how to, how to create and capture value. And I thought that would be a good intro uh, for today, as it uh, alludes to the spirit of what we want to discuss, which is a, a one-year uh, journey that uh, we embarked on uh, probably around the middle of last year to better understand something that we felt like was an anecdotal truth, but to try to objectify that, uh, package it, share it with the, uh, with the industry. And that, that, of course, is the impact of virtual on an existing uh, live group fitness program. So in the next 20 minutes here, I will uh, expose you to this ongoing study and uh, share with you what it's telling us so far, and then make an attempt to try and interpret that data uh, in a way that leaves you with a, cup, a couple actual insights that you can apply to your own live program uh, right away today. So my goal is to get this whole thing done in no more than 30 minutes. So I will condense my talking material to, uh, to 20 minutes, or at least I will try my best. So first, let's, let's talk about the study and, and how we collected the data. Um, as I mentioned uh, or alluded to just a minute ago, uh, it was over a year ago, probably the beginning of last year actually, that we decided uh, we wanted to do this research study. And we, we ultimately selected Rochester Athletic Club in Minnesota as a subject uh, and a partner for uh, this study. And we, we chose Rochester um, for a few reasons. Uh, one, or a primary reason, was they're a full-scale operation. Um, in fact, almost as full service as you can get. Um, being over 250,000 square feet, they have a member base of around 13,000, so very large sample size. And as you can imagine, uh, for a member base of that magnitude, they really sort of push the boundaries of all demographics, um, age, income, uh, exercise background, all of those pieces. And those, of course, were important to getting uh, an, unbiased, uh, an unbiased research study. So that, that was good for us. Um, also, this is a business that's been in operation for over 25 years. So they really run their business scientifically with a lot of attention to detail, and uh, uh, they had a lot of good historical data, which was another important uh, part of uh, setting up and configuring the research study. So um, we had a good feeling that, and we felt pretty optimistic about the impact that virtual would have on live, um, but we wanted to also uh, see not just the end result, the cause and effect, did virtual have a positive impact, but really understand the how, when, and why uh, for how those changes uh, would or would not occur. 
So uh, just drilling down a little bit more into the group fitness program, it's the, the group fitness program at Rochester is much of what you'd expect for uh, such a full service operator. Uh, they really have a full spectrum offering over 400 live classes uh, per month, um, five proper group fitness studios, and a couple other probably unmarked spaces for group training, functional training, and the like throughout the club. Uh, more than 50 instructors, so very, very uh, busy department, and um, this was good for us as well from a research study perspective because we knew that uh, in order for virtual to really demonstrate success in a club like Rochester, the value proposition would really need to be clear because, quite frankly, the members at Rochester have uh, tons of options. The, the analogy would be, or maybe an equivalent would be like uh, creating and launching your new food item in a grocery store. There's just lots and lots of other options if uh, this wasn't something that, that would provide a lot of value. So we felt like we, uh, we had our work cut out for us. We designed the study in four phases, each of those phases to last 90 days. So we set the study up uh, in a way that it could be conducted over one year. And the primary objectives were aimed at um, optimizing the overarching group fitness program. It's important to, to keep in mind that Rochester is the proverbial best on the block. Um, they're the, the biggest in their neighborhood. They offer the most amenities in their neighborhood. So um, when they their interest in working with us was not um, purely motivated uh, by uh, financials. In other words, they didn't need to cut costs or have a uh, you know direct need to do that. Uh, and it wasn't a competitive necessity. It wasn't like they looked at virtual and said, you know, there are formats that we can't hire for or we're not qualified to offer. Um, those really weren't concerns. So it it allowed us to sort of push those aspects to the fringe and really focus on the um, core elements of optimizing the group fitness programming, the, the things that we believe are least common denominators to anyone that has a live group fitness program. So things like making sure to match supply with demand, looking for opportunity to uh, uh, improve the member experience through high quality offering, um, looking for areas of uh, increased marginal gain with classes that are already on the timetable. So we centered around um, five or six uh, core data points and we set up outcome measures uh, against those to track those over the course of a year. Uh, we ended up digitizing three of their five studios, their um, lower studio, upper studio, and cycling studio. Uh, for a little bit of background, the, the lower studio, which is down on the fitness floor, uh, and I, we've got some images throughout the presentation, so we'll show you those, is, is truly a, um, a multi-purpose space. Really, any group fitness that you can imagine happens there. The upper studio is, is very similar. Um, it may be slanted a little bit more towards low impact, but it has a variety of, uh, of different Group X formats. And then, of course, the cycling studio. And uh, for each of those, we implemented our class count technology, which is a small hardware add-on available to fitness on demand customers that will uh, actually track attendance for both live and virtual events. So uh, we'll talk a little bit about some of the key findings. Um, I may have touched on this earlier, but we, we formally started recording uh, results in this study on January 1st of this year. So after the first phase was uh, completed, which was March 31st, we took the first opportunity to aggregate some of that data, start to organize it and tabulate it and make some you know year-over-year -year comparisons and look at some KPIs. So we, we think that the results here are going to be more substantial over time. 
um, but the early findings uh, seem to be uh, seem to be pretty good. So um, the first finding: it is possible to increase attendance while reducing uh, costs in your program simultaneously. So I'm going to give you a couple statistics here just to try to uh, paint this picture. Mainly what we're looking at is uh, March 2018, which was three months after launch, uh, compared to March 2017. Of course, in 17, it was a light-only program. Uh, now in 2018, uh, we have more of a complete program with the use of uh, with the combination of both virtual and live. In March of 2018, uh, Rochester had 9,200 visits uh, altogether for group fitness. That's compared to 6,661 in March of 2017. So they had a year-over-year -year increase of 2,631 total visits for uh, group fitness. So almost a 40% increase uh, in uh, participation and attendance, uh, maybe a better way to say it, for group X. And they did that while reducing their OPEX. So uh, looking at March versus March, uh, they were able to reduce OPEX for live programming by almost $1,000 per month. They picked up an additional $300 to $350 a month in uh, expense for the use of virtual, but had a net savings of around $600, uh, $600 a month. Um, the, maybe one of the more important metrics is to look at uh, the cost per class which Rochester was able to successfully decrease by 75%, um, looking at the 439 classes that were delivered in March 2017, compared to the 1,648 classes uh, that, that were delivered in March of 2018. Um, so this is a pretty strong financial result. Um, we'll talk a little bit more here sort of about the qualitative side of that um, and the actions that they took to, to see those results. Um, insight number two, one of, the, one of the things we learned, not just from looking at the data, but also talking with some of the members at Rochester, is um, once the technology was implemented, uh, it was utilized not just by those members who were new to the group fitness program altogether, but also by um, a certain percentage of the regular group fitness uh, participant population. So as I showed you in the last slide, there were around 2,600 more visits in March of 18 compared to March of 17. Um, but in March 18, there were 3,545 visits uh, for virtual. So uh, I can tell you anecdotally from talking to some of these members that uh, convenience was really the driving force uh, behind uh, their desire to use virtual, both for uh, uh, those that were new to the program and those uh, who regularly use Group X. In some cases, we believe, and uh, we'll be looking at the data uh, to try to sh show this and demonstrate this in the future releases, that um, virtual is actually allowing some of the uh, regular group fitness users uh, to use the group fitness program more often. Uh, also, one of, the, one of the statistics I think we were most impressed with uh, after 90 days of, of data was that in March of 2018, um, one out of every three visits for group fitness were for virtual. Um, and those altogether made up almost 6% of uh, all club visits in March of 2018. And Rochester uh, gets around 60,000 uh, club visits a month. So that was pretty meaningful. And I think it's a good takeaway for anyone that's on the webinar today who may uh, 
have virtual or who are contemplating it, uh, this is a product that doesn't necessarily need to be just a fringe amenity. This is something that can be uh, enjoyed sort of by the mainstream in your club. Um, and then fi finally, uh, high service to cost ratio. Actually, the, the last point is a good transition into this slide. Um, I think th this is an area of importance, and I think it's an area also where there's a lot of misconceptions because it, it can be easy to confuse small class size with low use. And again, if you've got virtual um, or you visited a facility that uses it, you can probably relate or testify to that that scene where you see a dimly lit room with maybe two or three people in it. And that that's certainly the case for Rochester where you have a 1,500 or a 2,000 square foot studio and it really dwarfs the two to three people that are in that, that virtual event. And it, and it can be easy to get the impression that it's a product that's not highly utilized. But if you actually look at the data, um, March 2018 for Rochester, uh, the average class size for virtual was 2.8 participants. So again, some of you that have the product probably listening to that going, yeah, that makes sense. That seems uh, reasonable. But uh, keep in mind, when you look at that, over 1,257 uh, virtual visits in March 2018, um, that resulted in the uh, 3,500 visits for, uh, uh, for virtual, excuse me. So let me just restate that because this is more numbers than I'm comfortable with, and I promise we're at the end of the uh, number section. Uh, here, so bear with me. But again, the average class size uh, for uh, for Rochester in March was 2.8 uh, people per virtual event. There were 1,257 virtual events in March, which resulted in thir around 3,500 uh, club visits, and that's what grew their group fitness attendance uh, by 40% year over year. So that that's meaningful. That's meaningful for anyone that has a live program. And I think the takeaway or the message here is that. Uh, some virtual classes are large and, and can be large, but most of them are going to be intimate. Where, uh, where, where, where virtual, uh, where there's really some opportunity for virtual or the optimization um, elements come into focus or become clearer is when you consider the cost of servicing those club visits. So uh, these are the final numbers. Uh, but in March of 2018, um, Rochester experienced $7,518 in OPEX uh, related to their group uh, offering with an average of about $19 per live class. So that I think is actually a little bit beneath the uh, national average. So some of you out there may be spending even more than that. But that, that $7,500 produced 5,747 visits, um, resulting in a cost to service each of those visits of around $1.30. Comparatively speaking, with virtual, there's a total cost footprint in March of $3, uh, $349.85, and that produced 3,545 uh, visits, uh, resulting in a cost to service each of those visits of around $0.10. Cents. So what does this mean? I, I think it really just sort of validates what, what we already know, and that is that, that virtual can be a fraction of the cost of a live of a live group program. And if, you, if you're one of those clubs out there today that has a successful live programming and you're asking yourself, why should I even consider virtual? If you're like Rochester, who, where they were offering over 100 live classes per week, this is the opportunity. There's an opportunity for uh, an increased marginal gain on some of the very classes that you pro probably already offer on your calendar.
So in these last few slides, um, I want to uh, talk about that data and see if, uh, if I can present to you a, a couple more action-oriented insights that you can apply to your own program if you have one. Uh, and if you're if you're contemplating virtual for the first time, I want to start by trying to make the case that that virtual and digital fitness is now a mainstream product or a product category. Uh, every year, URSA publishes a list of its global 25. So the top uh, 25 club operators globally as ranked by total member count. And what you're looking at uh, right now on screen is just the top 10 of those uh, 25 in the year of 2011, so the year that Fitness on Demand was established just seven years ago. And what we're, what we're trying to demonstrate here is of those 10, only, there was only one brand who was offering a virtual or digital fitness at that, at that point in time. And uh, of course, if you look at the list, the most recent list, which would have been from 2017, you see that uh, almost all of those brands are um, using uh, some form of virtual or digital fitness today, most of them in a, in a very meaningful way. But um, one thing I will point out is that not every customer is having the, the same uh, experience as Rochester. And maybe some of you on the webinar today uh, put yourself in that in that bucket. Um, in fact, uh, the results uh, vary widely, and I'd like to propose that this is this is largely a result of how the technology has been adopted by the industry over the last five to ten years. Um, I've been in virtual for actually I've been around it for all of those ten years, being uh, on the founding team of a, of a company called Fitness on Request, which really um, brought to market the first comprehensive uh, virtual product uh, of its kind. And for me, the transition between these different adoption eras uh, is a bit blurry in terms of its timing, but there, there have been three very distinct uh, eras of adoption, the third of which I believe we're just now entering into and leading club brands like Rochester are beginning to harness uh, some, of the, some of the opportunities uh, in this newest era. So let's run through these really quickly. Um, if you go back to probably 2006, 2007, 2008, when virtual first came to market, um, I call this the product era. It, the, the, product, the product and the adoption of it was, was driven entirely by the widget itself. Um, I thought about actually bringing some of our early marketing collateral, but I, I was too ashamed to do that, so I, I neglected. But if you're if you're interested in a good laugh later, I'm sure you can probably Google it and find it. But it, it's amazing how uh, how rapid and how big the impact of technology has been uh, on this product category. Uh, if you go back uh, again eight to ten years ago, uh, virtual uh, was a product that was designed to solve a very simple business challenge. It was it was just a low cost alternative to fitness instructors, and it was always available. It always showed up for work. It was available 24 seven, um, and uh, it was designed, built, and sold, and shipped uh, under an asset transfer model. So it was a physical thing that was sold to a customer. And um, a lot of the early adopters, a lot of the first customers for virtual work clubs, where the product was their only means for delivering uh, group fitness programming or any type of fitness content. Um, so we had very little knowledge on how the products were actually uh, being uh, received and utilized by members. 
Uh, if you fast forward uh, for another, say, two, three, maybe four years, uh, this next era was really led and perpetuated by market dynamics. So as some of these devices uh, made their way out in the field and the proof of concept around virtual emerged, um, content creators and programming providers became aware of this solution and they began to view it as a distribution channel for their own intellectual property. And the, the customer side of the market, our customers, they really gravitated towards that and they began to use programming on its own uh, to differentiate their own offerings. So they'd say, we have these videos or we have this uh, modality or format of group fitness and our competitors uh, don't. Uh, so it was a little bit more um, personalized, but not much. I, I think from a member experience point of view, the members probably appreciated the diversity in content, and we, we may have been able to reach a few more members by virtue of just having more options, but largely the member was still a receiver or a receptacle at the end of uh, this distribution channel. So that, that brings us forward to today, uh, what I call the experience era, and this is led not by the markets and not by the product, but entirely by customers. Uh, and this is where I think uh, some innovators like Rochester are beginning to meet the demands of the 21st century member. So in this area, uh, area in this era, consumers have uh, more power than they've ever had before. Um, Forrester Research, as an example, this is something that they've been talking about for a few years. They call it the age of the customer. It's a 20-year business cycle where consumers have the ability to price you, uh, critique, and experience your product, service, business, whatever it is, anytime, anywhere. Uh, the CEO of Forrester, George Colony, uh, depicts a really vivid image of a teeter-totter, where on one side, the side that's weighted to the ground, you have uh, the institutional world. So uh, large corporations, government, education systems, and on the, on the high end, the side that's raised, you have the customer. And he talks about how he believes, in his view, technology is transferring the power from the large institutional side of the world uh, to the customer. And it's enabling that shift through uh, two things. One, the ability for consumers to price with greater precision. So that has all to do with really understanding what they're buying and why the price is what it is. That puts the consumer in a position to make a judgment call uh, on value. So he, George tells a story of uh, going to the Ford dealership. His dad always bought uh, Ford vehicles. And 30, 40 years ago, his dad would take him to the Ford dealership and he'd point at a price tag on the car and he'd say, I'm paying this price for this car. But he had, he had no idea why the price was what it was, um, what the costs were that went into that product, um, what other people in the market were paying for similar purchases, manufacturer's incentives uh, that could have been offered by uh, a manufacturer and other car dealer as an example. So there was really little data and little information on that. And of course, for all of us today, that's, that's really changed. And the second way technology is enabling this shift uh, and putting the power in the customer's hand is through the ability to cr critique. And of course, this does include things like reviews that we all um, are aware of online. It includes social media and, and um, the ease of use and talking to friends and family who have maybe purchased or experienced your product or service. But it, but it has more to do with understanding the elements that make up your product or service offering. And it puts the customer in a position, they have a, a uh, uh, 
they have better opportunity today to assess how that product or service directly meets their unique needs and ultimately arrive again at a value um, analysis or a value evaluation. So the, the transmission of information in this new era, it's immediate, it's dynamic, it's mobile. Services are expected to be on demand and they're expected to be uh, personalized. So I see two ways, and I think they're nascent ways in which um, both products and markets have and will respond uh, to the opportunities in this new era. And I'll leave you with these two uh, pieces today. So number one, uh, innovative club brands are converting spaces into experience. Uh, experience experiences are really what uh, compel purchasing decisions today. Uh, it's no longer about amenities. It's not about the towel service you offer or the lockers or the water bottles on, you know, on spin bikes, that type of a thing. And on the subject of cycling, yeah, that's a great that's a great example. I mean, who would have thought just just 10 years ago that cycling studios would uh, now demand two to three times more revenue than their full service counterparts where they actually originated? And in fact, cycling cycling studios um, are not new within the last 10 years. They existed before that, but uh, within the last 10 years, they've obviously captured how to take that. Uh, take that uh, type of exercise and create an experience out of it and at a time when the consumer is willing to pay for it. Uh, and that's probably a truth that's, that's true for the entire boutique uh, uh, market space. So it's not about having the latest technology any more than it's about having the latest piece of fitness equipment. Uh, instead, innovative club brands, they're going to determine how to blend the physical and the digital together to deliver on the desired uh, member outcomes. So that's, that's converting space into experience. Uh, and then the last, the last actual insight is uh, meeting the member where they are. Uh, and I know that this, this probably appears to be a relatively simple idea. A lot of people are talking about it, but, uh, but its practice is a lot more uh, profound. Experience can happen anywhere, anytime, and in any shape that the member wants it. And if you, if you think like me, hearing that, it's kind of challenging. I like to take things and, and unpackage them and try to figure out how to turn those into ta tactics. And so this, this idea of experience can happen anywhere, it's a, it's a bit broad and ambiguous. And I always ask myself, like, how do you make progress against that? Where do you start? How do you keep up? Um, suddenly there are vines. Do you need to start creating vines once a week? And I'm sitting in my office with our marketing manager, Andrew, and he's rolling his eyes at me. I, I know uh, that vines don't exist, so he'll probably tell me that later. So I, I hope you didn't spend a ton of time learning how to create vines because I'm not sure that it even exists anymore. And if it does, it, it went away very quietly. Um, but, but how do you do that? Um, there's an excellent diagram I'll share on the next slide here. Uh, this is uh, from a guy named Tien Zhou, who's the CEO of Zuora, a subscription service. And um, he created this diagram to demonstrate um, the old business model versus the new business model and help answer that question. How do, you, how do you meet your member where they are? So if you look at the old business model, it's very siloed. You, it, it, the, the process and the business model started with the product itself, and then the business identified channels to reach customers. On the other side, you've got the new business model. And of course, what we know today is that our customers, they spend time uh, on various channels. They're not just siloed into one box. They can be 
anywhere. So the, the primary difference uh, that Mr. Zhou would, uh, would argue here is that uh, the new business model starts with the customer, with the member in the middle. And uh, the better that you can do that, the better you understand the needs of your customer. That's going to help answer that question earlier of where do I spend my time and energy? How do I meet the member where they are? The, the better you know their needs, the better you can service them, the better you can create value and ultimately create a longer lasting uh, relationship uh, with, your, with your member. So the right technology can, of course, um, help you enter these channels. Um, one example would be our, our mobile app, um, which is available free to our customers. That uh, helps unlock one channel um, and uh, ultimately can maybe provide some of the business intelligence that will allow you or empower you to personalize your products and services. Another great example would be um, our management app, which is a back-end tool. It sort of sits behind the scenes that our customers use uh, to harvest business intelligence on how their members uh, are engaging with, uh, with programming. And that's where a lot of the, the deta details on attendance and these type of things actually um, are actionable and can be reported on. But the, as much as the right technology can open those doors and, and provide you with that, with that data, it's, it's really not about the technology or the device at all. It's, it's far more personal than that, and it's, it's, it's all about the member outcome. So, uh, Rachel, I think that's all we've got today. Um, I don't know if we're going to try to do some Q&A, but uh, we're happy to stick around and try to field any of those questions if we have the time for it. Yeah, we do. Um, and we did have one question come through. Um, Brian was wondering, what are the key factors driving participation in virtual programming? Is it quality of programming, convenience, variety, or a combination of all three? Yeah, it's. I wish there was a simple, easy answer for that. Thank you. That's a great question. Um, and I think it is a combination of all of them. I, I don't think, like like a lot of things, I don't. If there was a magic bullet. Um, I'd be probably sitting on a beach somewhere, um, not in overcast Minnesota, uh, doing this presentation. So uh, I think it is a it is a combination of all of those, um, and it's a combination of uh, leveraging business intelligence and data to better personalize uh, the offer to your customer, uh, to your customer, to your uh, member base. Uh, and also, one other thing that I'll add is. Um, We've spent a lot of time, obviously, working with Rochester, trying to organize this research study and make sure that it's that it's uh, been a success. And what I'm always surprised of is when you look at the disparity between operators who are having real success with virtual and those that may be struggling. Sometimes the answer to that, uh, it's like the old cliche expression, the devil's in the details. It has a lot to do with the more subtle things that uh, that the club or the customer, the operator is doing uh, to launch, especially to launch the program, um, engaging both their internal team and um, making their external market, the, the member audience aware of uh, virtual and, and managing uh, that expert, in, uh, expert implementation with uh, great attention to detail. So that's another one. Uh, oftentimes it has a lot to do with uh, some of those more super, um, less superficial things of more subtle actions that uh, have a disproportionate impact on the outcome. Awesome, thank you, Jarrett. And then we do have another question. Um, Kim was wondering, in the Rochester Club, were the virtual classes in the studio scheduled or on demand, and is there higher 
participation in one or the other in your finding? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to the last part, uh, whether participation is higher in scheduled versus on demand. I would suspect that uh, it's higher in scheduled classes, um, but we haven't looked at that. We haven't parsed out that data specifically. Uh, but Rochester, very similar to uh, many of our most successful customers, are doing a combination of scheduling and also making the product available on demand uh, in the off-peak and low-interest times of the day. Uh, specifically with Rochester, when they launched, that, that was one of the key actions that led to uh, the increase of those 2,600 visits year over year. They uh, they actually scheduled somewhere between three to five virtual events in each of those studio every day. Perfect, thank you. Um, and then another question. For the increase in participation between 2017 and 2018, what other factors played a role? Was there specific marketing effort, efforts for virtual or was it part of the new member onboarding process, for example? Uh, yeah, there were there were a lot of um, marketing tactics. Um, uh, nothing that I would say was really profound, but a lot of diligence. I mean, no, nothing that that we would present that every that anyone on this call would go, "Wow, I've never tried that or thought of that before." But there was a lot of diligence around um, the marketing communication. Um, one of the things, I mean, just to give you a great example, um, not more than a week ago on social media, I saw that. Rochester had their entire PD department uh, take a virtual class. And uh, so that, that's an example of an internal marketing effort to make sure that the, the departments in the uh, club were literate uh, when it came to virtual and could, uh, you know, were, were educated on the product. Um, and then, you know, another great example is we, we've published this first release on our blog of the research study. And if you go to Google and you type in uh, fitness on demand Rochester Athletic Club research study. It's like the seventh uh, result, and I'm looking at Andrew here. Uh, he's got to help us fix that. But uh, it's like the seventh result on the page because the first um, six or so, six or seven search results are actually communications that Rochester organized prior to the launch to inform their own member base of the uh, new amenity. So they did. They were. They were really. They were really diligent about that. They utilized a lot of the same, uh, you know, sort of marketing channels that that we all use uh, every day. But they were. They were very organized and very diligent about it. Awesome. Thank you, Garrett. Well, that's all the time that we have. But is there anything that you'd like to add before we end? No, I think we we said it all. Thank you so much for the questions and the opportunity to uh, to present today. Okay, awesome. Thank you, Garrett, and thanks for everyone who was able to attend today. And if you have any um, follow-up questions, feel, re feel to reach out to me, and I can pass them on to Garrett or reach out directly to Fitness on Demand. I'm sure they'd be happy to help you. We'd love All right, that. Thanks, everyone. All right, thank, thank you. you.